The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 386 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from practice. Our topic today is tiny tubes for treating strokes explained for family caregivers. Now, stroke is a medical emergency. A stroke is caused by a blood clot that blocks blood vessels in the brain or a blood vessel in the brain. And it's called an ischemic stroke. That's I-S-C-H-E-M-I-C, stroke. An acute ischemic stroke occurs when the brain's blood flow is blocked. It's an emergency because within minutes, brain cells begin to die. The deaths of brain cells harms the brain's functioning, uh, and it does so quickly, which can create trouble, often serious trouble, with things like numbness, muscle weakness and walking, speech, thinking and understanding, which is a condition which we call dementia. All of which is why our topic, Tiny Tubes for Treating Strokes Explained for Family Caregivers, is so important for family caregivers and their family members. Now, to discuss it, our guest is Dr. Michael Hill. Michael is Professor for the Department of Clinical Neurosciences, Community Health Sciences, Medicine, and radiology at the University of Calgary in um, Alberta, Canada. He's also director of the Stroke Unit for the Calgary Stroke Program, Alberta Health Services. He holds McGill University's BSc degree in biochemistry and the University of Ottawa's MD degree. He's certified as a specialist in internal medicine and neurology He undertook a stroke fellowship and clinical epidemiology training at the University of Calgary, where he completed his Master of Science degree and where he was appointed to faculty in 2001. His research includes um, stroke thrombolysis. That's what they do to dissolve strokes. The way in which stroke occurs who it occurs to, when it occurs, and things like that. Epidemiology, a kind of statistical statistical method, and surveillance and clinical trials. His research is funded by the U.S. National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke and the Canadian Institutes for Health Research. He holds numerous awards for his research and publications. So welcome to the show, Michael. 
Thanks, Gordon. Now, first question for you. Please tell us some more about your life and your career. Michael? Well, I, I grew up in Toronto, which is uh, um, in, in Ontario, in Canada. And um, then I, uh, as, you, as you said, I actually did a little bit of uh, touring around. I, I did undergraduate training at McGill in Montreal and then went to the University of Ottawa um, and then I came back to Toronto and then ultimately moved out west to, to Calgary in, in 1999, and I've been here ever since. Right, right. Now, what I'd like you to do is to tell us more about the stroke research that's being done by you and your research t- team at the Uni- University of Calgary. Please? Yeah, let me, let me start by, uh, for, your, for your audience, just explaining a little bit about stroke, and then I'll, I'll dive right into the, to the research topics. As you said in your introduction, there, the, the commonest type of stroke is called ischemic stroke, and that occurs when there's a, a sudden blockage of a major artery in the brain, and one region of the brain doesn't receive enough blood flow. The other type of stroke is hemorrhagic stroke, when you have bleeding into the brain or bleeding uh, in the space between the brain and the skull. And that's, uh, that can be quite serious as well, but it has a different mechanism. It's also less common. Only about 15% of strokes are due to hemorrhage, whereas 85% of strokes are due to blocked arteries. So when we say stroke, we typically mean ischemic stroke because it's the most common form. So it turns out that uh, in ischemic stroke, there's a wide range of, of, of presentations because the symptoms that one, one develops if you, it really depend on which artery is blocked. It also can range in severity. So the most minor form of stroke is, is called a TIA or a transient ischemic attack, also commonly, commonly called in, in the general public a mini-stroke. And it can go all the way, all the severity can go all the way to, to a major stroke, which may even cause death because so much of the brain is, it gets damaged from lack of blood flow. So around the world, um, you know, I work with, you know, colleagues around the world and in Canada and, and our group in Calgary has been working on new, new and better ways to treat ischemic stroke particularly. And we've recently completed a study called the ESCAPE trial. And uh, that was published in the New England Journal about six weeks ago. And in that trial, we, we tested the idea that, that we could open arteries with catheters, tiny tubes as you've called them, uh, in the brain to relieve the blocked artery and restore the blood flow. And what we showed in that, in that study quite definitively is that if you do that very fast, in the right patient selected by, by imaging, we image the brain with a CAT scan or an MRI, and then you open the artery, you can see dramatic reductions in disability and you even save lives. Now, why did you and your team decide on the line of research, we're going to call it tiny tubes, what led you to the idea that that was, should be your, your focus? Michael? Yeah, Gordon. That's uh, that's been evolving over over a number of years, as you as you might predict. However, I think it's fair to say that we took cues from our colleagues in cardiology, 
but cardiac uh, cardiologists have have developed uh, tremendous similar types of systems to open up blocked coronary arteries or heart arteries when someone has an acute heart attack. So the 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 analogy is very very similar by analogy, and conceptually it's it's the same as plumbing in your house. If you have a blocked pipe, you're not going to be able to you're not going to be able to flush your toilet, or you're not going to be able to get water to have your shower. If you can open up the blockage, then you can then you're able to to um, to get the water flowing again, and the same applies to to the brain. Now, what has what happened in the history of of this development of this treatment for stroke is that we had a whole bunch of negative trials or or you know uh, uh, false starts in the in the research. It wasn't really known how to do this well. I think we uh, brought um, you know we, we brought we brought some some new innovation to this area with a particular focus on on the types of imaging. The, the working working together as a team to act really fast. And we made use of new technology that has only become available in the last three or four years. And it turns out that it's highly effective at opening up the arteries in this exact situation. It was the combination of all of those three things together that has, that has made this a reality. Now, let's just ask you this question. Just Describe to us the tiny tubes. How tiny are they, in fact? Tell us about them. Yeah, they're pretty tiny. Um, uh, uh, the process of endovascular treatment, endovascular means inside a blood vessel, uh, is in, in the case of stroke, is that we would put a needle in the groin into the femoral artery. If, you, if, if one... Uh, feels in the groin, you can feel a pulse, and that's the that's the femoral artery pulse. And you would pass a catheter through the needle, so the size is is sub millimeter size, right? It's uh, these are catheters that are fractions fractions of a millimeter, and you can thread that catheter from the groin all the way up the the aorta, which is the main central artery in the trunk of your body. Uh, to the beginning of the arteries that go up to the brain, and you can thread the thread the thread the uh, catheters into the brain, and uh, and then apply the the therapy to remove the remove the the blockage. So, tell me about the navigation, the navigation of the tiny tubes, so that they go into the right place. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. No. That that's an important question. This has to be done under radiological guidance. So in this is a procedure which is done in a in a angiogram suite so that you can do what's called fluoroscopy that's radiation it's it's uh, it's like a moving x-ray so you can follow continuous x-ray so you can follow the catheter and navigate it into the right place Now what that really means to me is that you and your team are dependent on some very sensitive technology that not only produces these tiny tubes, but also helps you navigate them in such a way that they get to the right place. Is this the kind of thing that you have to practice? I'm talking about the navigation now. Um, how do you learn it? Um, where did you learn the navigation, Michael? 
So you're absolutely right. This is this is a mixture of of technologies that that um, that allows us to do this. The first is the manufacturing of these devices and these catheters. It's highly technical. It's people dependent, and it's it's precise engineering. I, I don't have familiarity with all of that, but you're absolutely right. The second thing is we are dependent on fluoroscopy and what are what we call angiography suites, where this equipment is located. And typically, this equipment is only available in major hospitals. So, as you as the the evolution or the implication of that is that. Um, this treatment is only going to be available when we can get stroke patients to the right hospital at the right time to be treated by the right people. Thirdly, your comment about training is also important. It is, it is, it is, it, it, it does take training. It takes a couple of years of training to learn how to do this well. It's not easy, um, and uh, and it takes special uh, expertise. Now, at that point, point. we're going to do something that um, I always comment on. Um, That is to say, we're going to take a break because this is where we have to pay the rent. So we're going to do that now. This is is Dr. Gordon Adley, and my guest is Dr. Michael Hill. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleiner Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Michael Hill. Our topic is Tiny Tubes for Treating Strokes Explained for Family Caregivers. Michael, now let's talk 
in more detail about your research into treatment of acute ischemic stroke. Now, first question, please explain how your research is organized and actually how you do the research, how you, how you conduct it. Michael? Okay, that's, that's, uh, that's an excellent question because I, I think people often don't understand how, how new treatments are brought to, brought to the fore. Uh, clinical trials, which is, to, which is what I do, are the way we test new medicines or new devices or new procedures to show that they, they actually do what we think they're going to do. It takes a lot of development beforehand until you can get to the stage where a clinical trial is appropriate. For example, you have to show that, uh, that a medicine or a procedure or a device is safe. It does what it, you think it's going to do. Um, and you can, and it's feasible to to apply to, uh, to patients. When you get to the stage of a clinical trial, the the standard that we have in our society, and really across the world, is we do what are called randomized controlled trials. That's the standard that allows regulatory authorities, uh, such as the FDA in the, in the United States, or Health Canada in Canada, or the EMEA in Europe. To, uh, to, to issue a license to a company or a, or a, or a pharmaceutical manufacturer so that they could, they could sell their drug and claim that it actually makes people better. So when we do a randomized trial, for example, in stroke, uh, patients who have an acute stroke would come to their hospital. We would organize uh, a number of hospitals to work with us to recruit patients into the study at a given hospital, if a, if a patient arrives, we would speak to the patient if they were able, or more commonly in stroke, because stroke makes you, makes you um, incapable of, of providing consent and understanding what's going on. We would talk to a family member, and we would ask them if, if we could include their husband or spouse or brother or daughter or, or mother into the trial. Uh, an important concept about randomized trials is that when you agree to be part of the trial, you're agreeing to be randomized to one treatment or another. Typically, when we're doing a study, we're comparing one treatment, a new treatment, versus the standard of care, whatever the standard treatment is. And the randomization is, process is really important because we don't know... Uh, whether the new one's going to work. And we want to have an equal distribution of patients with particular stroke types in the two groups. At the end of the trial, what happens is we unblind ourselves, and that includes the patients, and we, we open up the randomization key and see which treatment each person got. And we look to see if the group of patients that got the new treatment overall did better than the group of patients who got the standard of care. And if that happens, then we conclude that the new treatment works, and then naturally there are a number of, of further steps in administration, etc., but that means that the new treatment can now be made available to all patients with this condition. And many of the medicines that we have available uh, now were developed, and procedures that we have were developed using this process Patients that are involved in trials often, often also do better. They, they get more attention, and overall it's thought that, that participation in a randomized trial 
results in better outcomes, even if you get the standard standard even if you're randomized to get the standard treatment compared to the new treatment. Um, uh, and of course, there's a little bit of altruism as well, because even if you don't benefit, you're helping future patients to, to uh, who, who might have stroke or whatever the condition is that's being studied. It's a complex process. Yes, it takes yes. a lot. It takes a lot of effort, um, but it's uh, it is a definitive way to move forward. It's science based, and it really helps us to understand uh, how to treat patients. Please say a little bit more about how you actually describe the research to the patients, if that's possible, or and or to their family caregivers. What what do you actually say to them, Michael? No, sure, that's an excellent excellent question. Um, I would just comment first of all to say that in stroke, certainly major strokes that we commonly deal with, most of the time the illness itself renders the patient incapable of understanding what's really going on and and they and they're not really capable of providing their own consent so most often we are talking to the family members uh, who will ultimately be the caregivers uh, you, you know the audience for your for your uh, for your show here so I think it is imp- is important to discuss typically um, the details matter so it depends on what we're studying but if we were studying a new treatment I would I would say something like you know, I would first explain what's happening. You know, your husband is having a stroke, and this is what it means. Uh, it's affecting his left side of his brain, so his right side is weak, and he's having trouble talking. We're going to give him all the best standard treatment we can. We're also trying to understand if there are new treatments that we can offer. And so we're involved in a randomized trial to try and understand if this new medicine, drug X, uh, is going to provide a better outcome for patients. Your husband is a is a possible candidate for this trial. What it would mean is that that if you agree that he would be the kind of person who would who would participate in a research trial, then he would be randomized to either get this new drug X or he would get our best standard of care, and and all of our patients get the best standard of care in our stroke unit. Um, that, that's the kind of thing one would say, and that's what you would say to a, to a patient. There's more details to go through, but that's, that's how it would go. Right. Now, I'm assuming that this research is ongoing. In other words, you've not completed it, you're carrying on with it. Is that right, first of all? Well, in terms of the, the recent trial called the ESCAPE trial, which looked at these tiny tubes, I think it's we've we've subsequent to our publication. There's been some other publications as well, which have confirmed our results. And I think uh, it's going to slowly and actually probably fairly rapidly change stroke care uh, around the world. So I think we, you know research research will be ongoing, but we've pretty definitively shown that this is going this is the kind of therapy that we need to be offering our patients. So I think this is going to be a be a big change. However, I would I would point out that it's still true that forty to fifty percent of our patients in in the trials did not have a good outcome, even though we made it better for 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 a, for a large majority. So there's lots of work to be done to try and to try and improve the outcomes of the patients. So yes, right. research is ongoing. 
Right. Now, please explain to us, highlight for us, the most important of your research findings. I'm, I'm going to say your research findings to date. What are the most important of those findings? Michael? Well, again, I'll, I'll talk about this recent trial uh, uh, because I think it, it tells us, tells us um, it, it, helps, it really helps to, for people to illustrate it. So in this trial, what we showed was that with this new treatment, with a team-based treatment with, the, with these endovascular catheters, we reduced mortality by about 50%. Mortality now, meaning death. Death from that- stroke. Death yes. from stroke. That's right. So, mortality in the in the in the routine in the in the typical standard of care treatment arm was nineteen percent, and in the new treatment arm it was slightly less than ten percent. So the apps the, the relative reduction was a fifty percent reduction in mortality. But more importantly, as a neurologist, uh, it's it, I'm more interested in reducing disability. There are times, and, and family caregivers on you know, listening will, will, will probably find this true, that there are some times when a stroke is so severe that death is an appropriate outcome. And, uh, and in those situations, I turn, into, I turn into not a neurologist so much, but a palliative care physician and help, help people to have, have a, a, a death with dignity. One of the most important things we showed in the escape trial was that we, we substantially reduced disability. And that was the most exciting part of, our, of the results of our trial. We had an absolute re, uh, reduction in disability of 24%. And uh, that means that on average, if, if we treat four patients, one less patient will be disabled. So this is a major, a major and large treatment effect. And it's a visible effect. We, we see people get better and walk out of hospital back into their lives. Walking back into their lives is a very powerful image. Does that mean then they're completely free from any of the residue, residual effects of the stroke or that the residual effects are slight enough to be not much of a bother or worry? Please explain that to us. I think the answer is both. Uh, there certainly are some patients. It's it, admittedly it is uncommon that somebody gets a one hundred percent completely better. But we did see some patients that that happened to that they were they were able to go completely back to all of their previous activities, or if they were still working, back to work and and back into their lives. Um, it's also true that some patients got got a lot better, but still had some minor symptoms. Yet they were still able to go back home, uh, and the, the 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 contrast is the patients who were who were who were quite disabled. If you're you can imagine if you're paralyzed on one side and you can't talk, then it's very difficult to live at home. And many of these patients are going to be living in nursing homes uh, if they survive. So the distinction between being paralyzed and living in a nursing home versus going back to your house and being able to go golfing two months later is quite a stark one. Yes. yes. <laughs> now, I'm just going to make um, a quick, uh, dump, take advantage of a point you've just made and give a boost for family caregivers. Um, Michael, what you're saying is that family caregivers are more and more going to be looking after their family member who's had a stroke 
um, because of your research findings. Now, I'm not in any way saying that negatively. It's a beautiful thing. But at the same time, it emphasizes the point that family caregivers need recognition, support, help, training, and all the rest of it for this new and wonderful, in that sense, responsibility. Um, now, I may have more to say about it at the end, but I think what I'm sure you agree with me on this, that the support for family caregivers, for whom home is the place that their um, loved one goes, is really very important, a very important part of our healthcare system. Yep. Quick yes or no to what I've said. What do you think? Yes, yes, that's certainly true. Um, okay. Certainly true. That, yeah, family caregivers are super important. I agree. Thank you. Now, we've come to the end of this particular um, segment, so we'll take the break. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Dr. Michael Hill. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Tune in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's practical, positive solutions for a happy, empowered, and successful life think of the world 50 years ago now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate our children and grandchildren will only have 25 percent of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had we must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living that foundation starts with go green radio join your host jill buck for go green radio every friday at noon eastern 9 a.m pacific on voice america Families today face unique challenges. Marriage, parenting, and family forms have changed a lot in the last century. Family Matters with Dr. Virginia Collin will focus on building and maintaining healthy family relationships. We will discuss marriage, divorce, family mediation, parenting, lifestyles, and mental health. All kinds of family matters. Our show will feature guest experts and your participation, too. You can listen to Family Matters live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Michael Hill. Our topic is Tiny Tubes for Treating Strokes Explained for Family Caregivers. Michael, I now want to 
explore with you in more detail your findings. You've already highlighted important parts of them and talked in some detail about them. But I just want to probe, if you like, a little bit more in into the, if you like, the effects of your findings uh, in the immediate and foreseeable future. So the first question is basically this. What are the ways in which the most important of your research findings are especially important in the emergency treatment of acute ischemic stroke. Michael? I would say that um, I, I guess an important thing for, for, for everyone to understand is, that, is, is to highlight what you said at the beginning of the segment. Stroke is an emergency. If I am, if I am to treat a patient with a, an acute stroke, I need to. I need that patient in the emergency room as soon as possible. And the best way in any major city or any major metropolitan area is to call nine one one. Bringing someone by an ambulance is the best way to get them to hospital. Even if their symptoms get better on the way, which sometimes happens, that's fine. I'm ready to, and, and the teams are uh, in in many of the hospitals are ready to see people. So the first thing for people to understand is that is that it is an emergency, it needs to be recognized, and speed's critical. Another important component that I would say about uh, from the experience of treating stroke patients is that the most common uh, situation is that the patient themselves does not activate the paramedics or is not, does not call 911 because they're unable to. They've had a stroke. They can't get to the phone or they can't speak or they don't know how to dial the phone anymore because their brain isn't working. So it's really important for people to realize that even if you don't have a stroke, you need to know the signs and symptoms because that's what's going to result in you being able to help your mother or your grandmother or your spouse when it happens to you. And it's it, the final thing to know is that stroke is common around the world. It actually is the second leading cause of death around the world. And by the time you get to age 80, one in four people have had or experienced a stroke, which means that if you have living grandparents, you have almost certainly had an experience where, where one of them has had a stroke. So knowledge of stroke uh, and, and increased knowledge is critical for action in the community. Now, I want to follow up with the next question. Again, it's the same basic question. What are the ways in which the most important of your research findings are being used? But I'm now going to say applied now, this in this time that we're living in, or mm. are likely to be applied, you know, over the next little while. And we're talking about the treatment of acute ischemic stroke. The so use let, of your research findings, Michael. Absolutely. So let me let me tackle that. Let me tackle that question in two ways. Or first, I'll just outline for for your listeners what what happens if someone has an acute ischemic stroke and they and they get treatment. So the first thing to say is that if, if it's recognized, someone has a sudden onset stroke, an ambulance is called nine one one. The paramedics recognize the stroke and they bring the patient to the right hospital. There's a system in place so that the paramedics identify stroke and they know to bypass the smaller hospital and come to the major hospital where the where treatments are available. 
the first thing that has to happen is the patient has to have a, a picture taken of their brain and arteries. And we do that with a CT scanner or a CAT scan. You do a CT scan of the brain and a CT angiogram. All of that takes just minutes to do. And, and then immediately we have information to tell us whether this is the kind of stroke that can be treated uh, with, with, the ther- with the endovascular therapy. Most patients or many patients will be eligible for medicine as well to try and dissolve the clot. We use a medicine called TPA. That's administered as an intravenous infusion. It's also equally important that be, that be uh, uh, started immediately. And we do that concurrently or together with the endovascular therapy. If a patient has a large blocked artery, the kind of blockage that's amenable to endovascular therapy, then we give the TPA in one arm and then we rapidly mobilize the and what we call the endovascular stroke team or the neurointervention team to get uh, the patient into the angiography suite and we um, start the procedure, puncture the femoral artery, um, um, guide the tubes up into the brain, deploy uh, a special type of stent, which is a like a snare. It's, it snares the clot that's blocking the artery and pull that clot out and restoring flow. The objective is to work as a finely oiled machine so that you are moving at extreme speed, working in parallel to get that, get that blood back to the brain. If we can do all that at speed, and that includes the speed of getting a recognizing stroke, getting the patient to the right hospital, and that's all included in there, uh, then, then the patient stands the best chance of having an excellent outcome. So how, how will that be applied now? Well, I can, I can be confident and tell you that one of the, one of the real benefits of doing clinical research that, that results in a positive trial like this one is that the hospitals that were involved in the research are all ready to go. For two years, they participated in our study and, and they did this procedure. Their teams were in place. Everything was done and ready. And so now that this, it has been shown to be a positive result, they can immediately turn around and continue with their teams. So the, the benefit of doing the clinical research is all the training was in place, all the quality control was put in place for the trial, and now we can just turn around and it's a turnkey operation to get, this, to get these treatments going. And I'm confident in telling you that this treatment is already being applied across the hospitals that were involved in the ESCAPE trial, and it's already being implied in many of the hospitals that were involved in some of the confirmatory trials that have just been published. I mean, the theme that comes across to me is fast, fast tracking from the very moment something goes wrong with the individual through to the point that the team is at work uh, with the tiny tubes and all the things that go with them, um, getting the treatment going now north america canada these are places where distances are great not everybody lives in a calgary or a toronto or new york or other big places with great hospitals what are the benefits that your research findings bring to patients who aren't adjacent to a teaching hospital of the caliber that you work in michael well, um, you know, it turns out that uh, 
in North America particularly, we are increasingly an urban society. A good chunk of our populations all across North America uh, live within within an hour's drive of a CT scanner. Um, something like 80% or 90% of the population actually live that close. So, so, so these therapies are potentially, uh, you know, amenable to to more widespread distribution. But you're right; there are still people who live in more remote areas or rural areas where access to this kind of therapy is going to be very challenging. Um, I think it's this is not a unique thing in stroke. There, are, there are other conditions that if they happen suddenly and people are in remote areas. You know, you just may not be able to get to that patient in time. And that is a an implicit um, risk that you take if you are living in a remote area. So I think it's there. However, there is also uh, an increasing use of air ambulances, helicopters, and even fixed-wing ambulances. And we have begun to explore that in Alberta and others. And we, we do, in fact, receive patients with acute stroke. Uh, by air ambulance, and we have been able to treat them, and we have seen some successes. So as these things roll out, we're going to be working on what are the best ways to triage people, to centralize care, to to minimize the transportation delays. Um, it's not going to be without its difficulties, and there will be some times when it just isn't possible to help people. Um, but But I think we can cover a really good chunk of the population. That's thank you. That's a very re- reassuring message. Just one quick question that flows from the perspective of the individuals who live a long way away. Um, the question then is: Will the diagnosis, in the sense of the individual or the family, recognizing that there is the likelihood of a stroke, is there any way in which you might see technology developing so that um, in those situations the family caregivers may be able to, when I use the word diagnosis, I don't mean in a medical way, but understand that there's something here that needs a fast track and appropriate response. Do you see any developments there? You know, I, I think uh, I'll just say I have two comments about that. One is that we are starting to use the the benefits of technology. We're in in an increasingly connected world, um, and it, you know, in theory, you can be anywhere on the planet and and get access to the internet by satellite. You know, so it's possible to get information to the right people. We do use uh, telemedicine or telehealth solutions to help uh, rural hospitals or doctors in rural hospitals understand what's going on with a particular patient. We do it for stroke treatments. It's certainly possible to give, even if you can't do the endovascular treatment, you can give medical treatments, TPA, for example, this clot-dissolving medicine in rural hospitals, and we do that under the, the, under the guidance of telemedicine. The second thing I would say is it is is still one of... Uh, of, of public education about stroke and and you know your 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 radio show here is a good example of how that will help there is uh, in the heart and stroke foundation in Canada and the American Stroke Association in the United States has been promoting uh, public education to help understand they use the acronym fast face arm speech and time to illustrate the the symptoms and and the necessity for speed in in stroke 
Um, we could be using, you know, your your cell phone or portable device to take pictures or videos and and um, and interact with others. Um, there's, it's increasingly true that I hear about situations where somebody's taken a little video of their husband, sent it to their son, and the son has recognized it's a stroke, calls back the, his mother and says, call an ambulance, dad's having a stroke. And so this kind of thing, you yeah, know, yeah. It's, it's, it's available. And as we, as we are connected, these technologies will be helpful. Right, right. Powerful, encouraging, encouraging message. message. Now, once more, it's time to take the break. This is Dr. Gordon Hasley. My guest is Dr. Michael Hill. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Get ready for some lively discussion on Barely Controlled Radio with Jeff Reed. From sports to relationships to current events and more, pretty much anything is on the table. Besides being a place kicker for the Super Bowl champion Pittsburgh Steelers, Jeff Reed is also a journalist, blogger, and opinionist. And he's ready to talk to you and tackle the issues that you've been wanting to talk about. Tune in to Barely Controlled Radio every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Women can live their lives to the fullest and realize their dreams for growth and greatness. Georgine Summers knows. As host of On the Edge, Georgine will give you powerful tools and rules to help you change direction in your life and get rid of the fears that stop you from living your dreams. Stretch your boundaries and become the amazing person you've always wanted to be. On the Edge with Georgine Summers airs live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Michael Hill. Our topic is Tiny Tubes for Treating Strokes Explained for Family Caregivers. Michael, now I'd like to ask you what more you would like to do and see done to advance your research the furthering of your research into the treatment of acute ischemic stroke. So what more would you like to do, 
Michael? Uh, I think there are, there are two things. Gordon, thanks for the question. Um, uh, on, the, on the treatment side, I'm, we're still interested in, 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 as I mentioned earlier, trying to find new things that will help. Uh, we still have a significant number of people who do not do well despite this treatment. We've made a big, we've made a big leap ahead. Um, but we didn't leap all the way to the finish line. There's still lots to be done, and we want to look for new medicines, new ways of treating people uh, to try to to try to make to try to make everybody get better. Um, the second thing is an implementation thing, uh, and and that is that we do have a lot of work ahead of us to try to sort out what's the best way to triage patients uh, to the right hospital at the right time. As we talked about earlier in the show, it takes a it takes a terrific coordinated team effort uh, with multiple people, all the way from the family uh, recognizing a stroke, the paramedics, the nurses in the emergency room, the CT technicians, uh, all the way through to, to applying a, a novel treatment, and then, and then the follow-up care on the stroke unit and the rehabilitation ward. So the team is large, and how to implement this and make it work at, in multiple places uh, for a whole population is going to is going to take a lot of coordinated effort. So so we have a in Canada we call that the knowledge translation component of the of the research, and we have to do a lot of work on that. And we're engaged in in those in, in that work uh, that work now. So those right, two right. those two those two aspects are what we're going to be working on next. Now it's the same question, but it's addressed to other people. It's what more would you Michael like to see done and by whom should it be done to advance treatment of in the all the contexts you've been talking about Michael one of the key things that I would I would advocate for is is for people to get involved in stroke care um, especially the caregivers uh, neurological illness for the caregivers is tough it's the it's the most Probably, probably one of the most challenging uh, things for the caregiver is to deal with their loved one who has neurological illness. Stroke, of course, being the most common adult neurological illness. So, you know, we need help. As a, we're we're out there, we're making gains. We need you to get involved with in Canada the Heart and Stroke Foundation, in the United States with the American Stroke Association, the National Stroke Association. Um, to help us to raise funds for research, to help us lobby for uh, better ways of treating uh, treating patients, to help us lobby for better stroke organization in your community, in your uh, in where you live, because the because the the organization and the teamwork that you've heard about today is so critical to the outcomes for patients. Now, my next question to you is this. What's your message for family caregivers who've recently been told that a loved one has just had an acute ischemic stroke? Michael? Well, I, I imagine you would be told that in the hospital since you so it would be it would be after the fact. So I think uh, it would be an important thing to understand what the what 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 has happened and what the treatment is. But I guess that the important message would be that uh, there's lots of hope. Th- these treatments now are are Will will gradually become more widespread, and there is hope that patients can do very well. I'd encourage people to recognize that it takes a long time to recover from stroke, even among patients who have apparently done very well and are and, and can walk out of hospital after a week. 
It may take three, six, nine months before they're really back to normal and feeling themselves. It's a major illness, and it's important for the, the caregivers and family members to understand that it does take a long time to recover, even if on the outside the patient looks well. Right, right. Now, we've unfortunately come to the end of this episode. And first, Michael, thank you very much for explaining in language that family caregivers will find understandable, they'll find helpful, and they'll find insightful. Um, That's what the episode was about. And if I may put it this way, you've achieved the objectives for it, and I want to thank you. I also want to wish you and your team all success to you for all the work you're doing and very, very best wishes for the future. I want to say thank you to our listeners and I just want to add a quick plug for what we're doing. With Family Caregivers Unite, we're starting a new research project called Qualitative Research, which this episode is part of. The idea is to find out what you, our listeners, think about important topics, such as the one we've been listening to just now, and for you to share with us your experience of healthcare. So please email me to get to get involved or to hear more. And also, if you'd like to be a guest on my show, here's how to connect with me. Please email me at docg, all one word, D-O-C-G, at familycaregiversunite, all one word, dot org, O-R-G. Our next episode will be the challenges of PTSD for military personnel and their family caregivers. So please join us, same time, same time, same spot on the internet, and we'll talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.